Welcome to the fifth episode of the Educo Community Podcast. I am your host, Colin Robertson. Today I am joined by Shauna Shapiro. Shauna is a professor, author, and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness. She has over 20 years of studying meditation in Thailand, Nepal, and the West. She has also published 150 journal articles and chapters and co-authored the critically acclaimed texts, The Art and Science of Mindfulness, as well as Mindful Discipline, a loving approach to setting limits and raising an emotionally intelligent child. Today, her and I talk about mindfulness in our own lives, how it can help us respond to failures, how it can be applied to education, and how it can be applied to the corporate world. Now, I feel like I need to preface our conversation by highlighting mindfulness in the response to failure, because this is actually my second conversation with Dr. Shapiro. Our first conversation, I made a mistake. I lost her entire part of the recording, and she was kind enough to uh, do the whole thing over again. But in the midst of that failure, it was really hard to give myself the the kind of self-compassion that Dr. Shapiro recommends. I turned to beating myself up over it and feeling incredibly guilty and shameful about how did I make this stupid mistake. But that gave me a great reminder of just how important Dr. Shapiro's teachings are. Because failure is an inescapable part of doing anything new, of growing. You can't get rid of failures. And the more you beat yourself up over those failures that you can't do anything about at this point, the less likely you're going to be to actually learn from them. And Dr. Shapiro and I discuss the actual science behind that principle in our conversation today. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Shapiro. All right, I'm talking today for the second time with a very gracious Shauna Shapiro. Shauna, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks. Great. So I know you go into this in your TED Talk, and you just have a, just a wonderful story about how you found mindfulness in the first place. Um, so I just for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, just tell us a little bit more about your story and uh, how you found mindfulness. Well, what's interesting is I didn't share it in my TED Talk, but I actually learned to meditate when I was about five years old with my father, who was a big meditator. And he sat me down and he said, he said, picture you're sitting under a busy highway. And he said, and there's these cars racing over your head. He said, these cars are like your thoughts. What you want to do is you want to see the car, right? Orange car, red car, blue car, but you don't want to climb in and drive away. He said, same thing with your thoughts. You want to notice your thoughts, but you don't want to climb in and drive away. So at five years old, I understood nothing of what he said <laughs> and never meditated again. Um, But when I was 17, I had this major back surgery because of scoliosis, and um, it came very unexpectedly. I was, you know, kind of this healthy, active teenager, star of my volleyball team, and about to go and play in college, and all of a sudden, I had to have surgery, which prevented me from, you know, ever playing again, and I, it was a very challenging time, and I, I really didn't have the tools to cope. Um, and so during that time, I really began searching for something that could help. Um, and it was really during that period of searching that meditation came back into my life. And I ended up going to Thailand and Nepal once I'd healed from, you know, from my back and 
while they're really deepening and discovering um, mindfulness and meditation and, and really this whole path. Great. So when you were at the monastery, what, what kind of things did you take away from it? Well, it's really interesting because when I arrived at the monastery, I didn't actually know much about meditation or mindfulness. And kind of my only instruction from the monks who, who didn't really speak any English and I didn't really speak any Thai, but they, they told me to focus on the present moment and to train my attention by feeling my breath come in and out of my nose. So I sat down, I began, you know, very determined, very earnest. And what I noticed as I tried to feel my breath is that no matter how hard I tried, my mind kept wandering off. And I started getting really frustrated because I thought, you know, if I worked hard, then it should, should work out and that I would be able to do it. But no matter how hard I tried, my mind kept wandering off. And I started to get really frustrated and to really judge myself. You know, what's wrong with you? I thought I was a terrible meditator. Um, why am I even here? And then I started judging all the monks. Like, why are they just sitting here? Shouldn't they be doing something? And <laughs> Yeah, it was, it, was not, it was not a highlight. Um, but luckily, a, a monk from England came who spoke English. And as I um, kind of shared with him my struggles with mindfulness, he looked at me and he said, oh, dear, you're not practicing mindfulness. He said, you're practicing judgment, impatience, frustration. And then he said these five words that I've never forgotten. He said, what you practice grows stronger what you practice grows stronger. And, you know, we know this now with neuroplasticity, our, our repeated experiences shape our brain. So we can actually strengthen and sculpt our synaptic connections based on repeated practice. And, you know, this doesn't just have to do with meditation or mindfulness. This is the way that the brain and human beings work. So if you look at taxi drivers, the visual spatial mapping part of their brain is bigger and stronger because they've been practicing navigating the, you know, all the, the streets. <laughs> um, and if you look at the brains of meditators, the areas associated with attention, because you're learning how to train attention, but also with compassion, with emotional intelligence, with empathy, grow bigger and stronger. And so what he explained to me that if I was meditating with judgment and frustration and impatience, then I was probably just growing judgment, impatience, frustration. So he helped me understand that mindfulness isn't just about paying attention. It's also about how you pay attention, right? It's your attitude. And so when I came back to um, America and started really studying mindfulness from an academic lens, I, I focused a lot of my career not I'm really helping people understand that mindfulness is more than just present moment attention, that it's really about how you pay attention and that this attitude is this very loving, open, curious, kind attention. So the monk actually said it's kind of like these loving arms that welcome everything into its embrace. And for me, that was a real turning point because you know, I had been at Duke University, I was studying psychoneuroimmunology and really looking at how our, our thoughts and emotions affect our immune system. And what we were discovering is that if, if you felt sad or you had, you know, negative thoughts that they depress your immune system and 
basically I was like, well, I'm going to get cancer if I, you know, there's all the studies, the, the cancer personality and, um, you know, and I was about 20 years old and I was like, but I do feel kind of sad and scared and lonely and confused sometimes. And what am I supposed to do with all those emotions? And what mindfulness taught me is that they're okay as long as you meet them with kindness. And it kind of gave me permission to feel everything. And for me, that was a huge relief and a huge comfort. Hmm. And so instead of essentially uh, approaching those types of emotions with uh, judgment, you were able to say, this is okay, and kind of embrace them, like you said, like a hug. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, for me, mindfulness is, is very much about seeing things clearly. That's actually what the word means, means see clearly. But the way that we do this is, is to pay attention with kindness, to kind of pay attention, like you said, with a hug, where there's this sense of whatever I feel or experience is okay. And when you open yourself to that, then you're willing to truly see things clearly. And so this, this kind of this, this attitudinal piece of mindfulness is, I believe, what's, what's most important. Otherwise, if I'm just paying attention, I can do it in such a harsh, judgmental way that I'm just cultivating those neural pathways. So I know you are a psychologist, and I know that this obviously applies to us on a personal level. Where else do you believe that mindfulness has room to grow in our society? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's really taken off in psychology. There's been, you know, thousands of studies showing the impact of mindfulness on depression, anxiety, panic disorder, substance abuse, it's, it's been really extraordinary in its, um, in its helpfulness and its benefit there. And we're just starting to explore the different um, possibilities of introducing mindfulness in education, in parenting, in business. And what we're finding is that, you know, yes, it reduces stress and yes, it reduces anxiety and depression, but it also cultivates these really important skills and capacities that are essential for learning, for growth, for change, for, um, for the workplace. And one of the areas that I think is most interesting <clears throat> is that as, as an exploring mindfulness and this piece around compassion and around holding ourselves and our experience with kindness, um, I've gotten really uh, interested in the research around shame and what has been discovered is that when we feel shame or self-consciousness or judgment or judgment from others, that the areas of the brain that have to do with learning and growth shut down. So that when we feel shame, the, the amygdala triggers this cascade of adrenaline and norepinephrine, cortisol to flood our system. And it actually shuts down our learning centers and shuttles all of our resources to survival pathways. So shame literally robs the brain of the energy it needs to do the work of changing and learning. And how mindfulness comes in is that I think it provides this incredible alternative to shame so that when we see something clearly that we've made a mistake or that we've hurt someone or we've acted in a way that we don't want to, instead of shaming ourselves or judging ourselves, we can see it with this kind attention and actually have the possibility of changing. Because what kind attention does is first, it, it gives us the courage to look at those parts of ourselves that maybe we wouldn't want to look at, right? Because 
if, if we know that we're going to shame and beat ourselves up, then we're like, Ooh, I don't even want to go there. It's too scary. But if we know that we're going to, it's, it's kind of like if you're a little kid and you come to your parent and you tell them you made a mistake and they, you know, they yell at you, you're not going to do that again. But if you come to them and you say, you know, mom, I'm so sorry. I spilled the milk. And she says, okay, sweetheart, let's clean it up. Then you're more likely to share. So it's the same with ourselves. So if we can pay attention to the kindness, then we're more likely to look at those parts ourselves. And second, when you pay attention with kindness, it actually bathes our system in dopamine and turns on the learning centers of the brain. So it actually gives us the resources we need to change. And so I think that the implications for parenting, for education, for the workplace, how we motivate our employees and, you know, is, is really profound. And it's a completely radical approach to think that when we make a mistake or when we see parts of ourselves we don't like, to actually be compassionate as opposed to beating ourselves up. Hmm. That, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, so with shame, should you, like we talked about anger and sadness and stuff like that, and they should embrace those with a hug. Would you do that with shame as well? Absolutely. So if you, let's, let's say you, you make a mistake or let's say you, you know, I'll, I'll use one from my own life is that sometimes I'll get angry at my son. I'll just get frustrated and, you know, he won't clean up his room or clear the table or whatever he's supposed to do. And maybe I'll snap at him or I'll yell at him in a way that is not what I would expect or hope for from a mindfulness teacher. And so then, you know, I have two choices. One is I can shame myself and beat myself up and go into this kind of negative spiral of how I'm not a good mom and I'm not a good meditator and all this stuff. Or I could take that same energy and first just feel my genuine remorse, right? The, the pain of causing harm. And bring kindness to, you know, oh, sweetheart, you're in pain. You, you don't, that's not how you want to treat your son. And, and because of your good heart, you're feeling pain right now. And instead of going into shame, you know, first bring kindness to myself and then have that same energy to go and, and feel things with him instead of sitting in my room kind of, you know, shaming myself. And so... It, it frees up our energy to actually go and repair what, what is needed. Absolutely. I mean, that solved a, a very important pr uh, problem in my mind. I, like, bought into a lot of the mindfulness practices for years now. But now I still had that thing of like, oh, I shouldn't feel shame and I shouldn't feel like this. I should approach it through curiosity. But now uh, I realize that I, I should feel the shame, but do it from that, that kind and curious way that you talked about. Exactly. Exactly. Because what we start to recognize is that when we when we get lost in our shame, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't allow us to change. And so when we feel the shame, basically we're feeling the, the pain of having caused harm. And instead of going down the road of shame and self-judgment, we go into healthy remorse. And we see things clearly and then we see how we can repair. Absolutely. So we obviously live in a very judgment-oriented society. Uh, I'm curious, especially in a college, how do you, as a mindfulness teacher, take a different approach to uh, <laughs> grading and, and judging your students? It's such a good question, and I've had many battles <laughs> with <laughs> I can imagine. my department. Um, so 
I believe that creating a safe, healthy learning environment is the best way for students to learn and, um, and, and really learn in a way that's not just rote memorization, but learn in a way that they can integrate and generalize the information to other areas of their life. And so for me, that has created some difficulty around grading because I don't want to create a fear-based classroom and environment. And so I work really hard with students to create um, grading opportunities where it's, it's based a lot on their effort and motivation and, and what they put into it. And I find they learn much better from that, that perspective. Now, of course, you know, you have to use grades and, and well, I wouldn't say you have to, but in our situation at, at, at my university, we do have to use, use grades. And so it is about um, finding that balance. But the most important thing for me in my relationship to my students is creating a safe environment where they know they will not be shamed and that every question is welcome and that we're all learning at our own pace. And that's okay. Sure. How have they responded to that? Well, I think so far, so good. <laughs> great, great. Uh, I know that you also uh, teach or um, talk to corporate clients about this type of stuff. I can imagine them thinking that it's a little bit too soft um, and, and, and not, not concrete enough. How do you approach corporate clients differently than, say, students? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question. What I really focus on with corporate clients is that, one, mindfulness does not make you soft or lose your edge it actually kind of creates this laser-like attention that allows you to be more effective, more productive, and actually helps the bottom line. There's been significant amounts of research showing that mindfulness enhances creativity, innovation, uh, problem solving. It also reduces um, absenteeism and sick days, increases loyalty to the workplace, decreases turnover effect. I mean, there's lots of really concrete ways that mindfulness can help in corporations. Um, so a lot of times people think they're bringing me in to teach stress management and to kind of be nice, nice to their employees. And what I have to clarify to them is this is actually going to benefit you. That that this is kind of um, has has two different um, applications. And one is to reduce stress and to and to cultivate happiness and more joy in one's life, more satisfaction, more meaning. But also it, it, it cultivates the very skills that you want your workers to have. Sure, I would imagine. And also just the, the aspect of seeing things clearly. I mean, business is very simple when you're just seeing things for what they really are. Exactly, exactly. Great. So how, how has the response been from corporate clients? I can't imagine that it's, uh, it's as easy as, as the students. You know, I've been really surprised, um, actually really impressed with the um, the the welcome that mindfulness and compassion has received from corporate clients, from leadership, from government. That I, at first I thought it was going to be kind of a hard sell, and it wasn't even something I wanted to try to sell. And what's been extraordinary is the response, the openness, the welcoming, and I think people are really seeing um, the benefit, and it makes sense. Absolutely. I would imagine a big selling point is the fact that it, how quick the results can come, how quickly you can start seeing things for what they really are and see the, the value of mindfulness in action. Exactly. Exactly. And I think 
the corporations are, are really seeing that, that there's kind of real demonstrable um, impact from, from very, very small um, shifts that they're making. What, how does, how does self-awareness, how does mindfulness, how do these aspects differ from, uh, say, the self-esteem movement? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's been a lot of research on the, um, kind of the differentiation between mindful self-compassion and self-esteem. And basically what they're finding, and I I think this is so important, especially for parenting and educational systems, but also in the workplace, is that Self-esteem, you know, feeling good about yourself works great as long as you keep performing and doing well. But as soon as you hit a rough patch, um, you know, your self-esteem is so much tied to outcomes and to external kind of um, accomplishments that it kind of fails you when you need it most. When, when you've, you've kind of made a mistake or failed or, or aren't doing as well. And this is precisely where mindful self-compassion is at its best, where it supports you and says, you know, even though you made this mistake, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. And it kind of gives you the courage to keep trying. And so what they're finding is that self-compassion is um, much more associated with health, both physical and mental well-being than self-esteem. Hmm. And is it because self-compassion is more focused on the process of learning, the process of curiosity, rather than the outcome, which is where self-esteem is focused? Partly that, and partly because self-compassion says, hey, no matter what happens, I'm here for you. That even if you mess up, even if you don't perform perfectly, even if you miss the soccer goal or whatever it is, I, I I still love you and you still deserve to be happy. And your worth isn't tied to performance. It's just that you are worthy, period. You are enough, period, regardless of your external accomplishments. And it doesn't mean that you become soft and you don't have high standards. You know, people who are more self-compassionate still have very high standards. They just don't um, beat themselves up when, when they don't meet them. That, that makes sense. Uh, so how do you take a different approach to um, your own parenting than, uh, than the self-esteem approach? Right. Well, so the first thing is I try to really um, encourage and praise my son's efforts as opposed to his outcomes. So, you know, I see how, I see how hard you're you're studying right now for the math test as opposed to great job, you got an A. Or um, I, I, can, I can tell how, how much fun you have playing soccer and how you're, you're working so hard at it instead of you're so great at soccer and you made so many goals. So I focus more on the process and the outcome and, and also how I approach when he makes mistakes or he doesn't do as well to really have faith in him, to show him that he's still completely loved, completely valuable and that his value and worth aren't dependent on outcome. Sure. And is that similar to, uh, say, having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset? I, I would say that's absolutely similar. It's that you're not kind of pigeonholing yourself into a certain defined category, but you're saying that there, there's always space for growth and that things are always changing and, and that kind of leads people to have hope. You know, they, they did a study at UC Berkeley and they 
gave the, the college students this impossible spelling test that no one could pass. And half of the group, they said, you know, you, you guys are really smart and you got into Berkeley, you should do well on this. And the other half of the group was a, a self-compassion intervention. And they said, you know, not everyone does well on this. It's perfectly okay. I'm sure you can learn it if you study. Um, so, so all the students failed and they said, you can retake it in a month. And the people in the self-compassion group scored much higher a month later because they, they had more hope that they could learn and grow. They, they still had faith in themselves, whereas the other group felt demoralized because their outcome was so bad and didn't, didn't study. Yeah, I could see there there being some dissonance there of if I am so smart because I got into Berkeley and I didn't get a good outcome, there must be something wrong with me. Exactly. So for anyone who wants to start practicing mindfulness on a regular basis and wants to try out your daily mindfulness journal, what do you hope they accomplish by using it on a regular basis? Well, what I've learned is that habits are human nature. That's just kind of how we work as human beings is we develop habits. And so you might as well develop habits that are healthy and good for you. And so I think the intention behind um, this is to help people really cultivate this self-compassion, this mindful awareness on a daily basis so that it becomes part of their life, so that they start carving out these neural pathways of presence and kindness and openness. And it starts translating into kind of their lived experience. And it takes practice, right? That what you practice grows stronger. And so the hope behind this is, is that it will give them a really simple, clear, accessible way to practice these teachings. Sure. How, so how did you come up with the, uh, the good morning practice? So um, some years ago, I was going through a really difficult divorce and I was experiencing a lot of shame and self-judgment just that we couldn't make it work and was feeling a lot of anxiety around what was going to happen with my son. And I'd wake up every morning with this kind of pit in my stomach and just, just feeling a lot of anxiety. And my meditation teacher said, you know, what you practice grows stronger. You, you probably should be practicing some, some kind attention. And so she suggested that I say, I love you, Shauna, every day. And that was too big a leap for me. I thought it was kind of too hippie or new agey. And so I, I said no. And, and she said, well, how about just saying good morning, Shauna, when you wake up, just, just say good morning and try putting your hand on your heart when you say it. It releases oxytocin. It's good for you. So she, she knew the science would win me over. So the next morning I put my hand on my heart and, and said, good morning, Shauna. And it was really nice, you know, instead of judging myself, shaming myself, worrying, I just greeted myself with good morning. And I continued to do this every day for a month. And when I went back to see her, she said, how's it going? I said, you know, really well. It's, it's, that, was, that was helpful. Thank you. She said, wonderful. You've graduated. Now the advanced practice. Good morning. I love you, Shauna. So I went home the next day, put my hand on my heart. Good morning. I love you, Shauna. I felt nothing. Uh, maybe a little embarrassed, but definitely not love. But I kept practicing. And um, some months later, I woke up in the morning, put my hand on my heart. Good morning. I love you, Shauna. And I felt it. I felt my grandmother's love. I felt my mother's love. I felt my own self-love. And 
you know, I wish I could say every day since then has been this miracle of love and I've never felt judgment or shame again. And that's not true. But what I will say is that this, this pathway of self-compassion of, of, of kindness is growing stronger every time I practice. And what I hope for people in engaging in this practice is that they start to awaken to their own self-compassion, their own have, um, their own best parent. That's how I think of it is that I'm kind of reparenting myself. And when something hard in my life happens or, or when I'm not feeling well, instead of kind of beating myself up, that I'm able to hold myself in this warm embrace of, of mindfulness. Sure. Yeah, I've I've been doing the uh, the practice for uh, about a month now as well, um, and every, it's it certainly felt weird and awkward at first for me. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I but I I, st- I stuck with it, and it's the thing that amazes me is like you, oxytocin is kind of a, a strange thing, but as soon as I put my hand on my heart, I always feel it. And and yeah. that it almost gives me the strength to to say the I love you part. Wonderful. That's that's great. And I and I agree. There's something about putting your hand on your heart that it just shifts everything. It's like this it's a gesture of kindness that is so foreign to us. It kind of opens the heart a little bit, it makes us a little bit more um it makes it a little more accessible. Sure. Yeah, it, it really is kind of like giving yourself a hug. <laughs> As weird as that is to say. Yeah, there's there's something really um, important, I think, about this kind of soothing self-touch. And and the fact that science supports it, I think, gives people the courage to go ahead and try it. Absolutely. All right, I don't want to take up any more time. I thank you so much for uh, giving, a, giving us another chance here. Uh, and um, is there anything else you want to tell people before you sign off today? I would tell people that transformation is possible no matter what, that no matter what your life circumstances or where you are, that change is possible for all of us. And the only way it happens is to begin. That was my conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. You can learn more about Shauna by checking out her TED Talk, The Power of Mindfulness, What You Practice Grows Stronger. You can start implementing her ideas by using the Daily Mindfulness Journal at educocommunity.com or check out her website, drshanashapiro.com. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to the Educo Community Podcast to listen to more conversations with me and the TED Talk experts that I get to talk to on a weekly basis. Next week, we will be answering all of your biggest questions about our community of experts, our online programs, and how to put science into action to make a meaningful difference in your own life. I will see you all then. Thanks again for tuning in.